Welcome to the Words Matter podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. So in this episode, I'm delighted to speak with physiotherapist Dr. Kieran O'Sullivan. Kieran graduated as a physiotherapist from the University College in Dublin in 1999. In 2004, he completed an MSc in Manipulative Therapy at Curtin University in Perth in Western Australia. And in 2005, he started lecturing at the University of Limerick, and that's where he remains now as a senior lecturer. In 2008, he was awarded a specialist member status by the Irish Society of Chartered Physiotherapists. And from 2016 to 2019, he took a three-year career break to act as lead physiotherapist at the Sports Spine Centre at Aspatar in Qatar. His research interest is musculoskeletal pain and injury, particularly persistent spinal pain. And he completed his PhD on persistent low back pain. He's published one book, six book chapters, and incredibly over 140 journal articles. So in this episode, we talk about the progression of the biopsychosocial model and the barriers and facilitators which influence this progression. Kieran shares experience of working within the different cultural and social contexts in Aspatar, Qatar. We talk about the systemic, organisational and structural factors related to clinicians' practice behaviour and the challenges of implementing a biopsychosocial framework. We wade through the swinging pendulum argument of the biopsychosocial model in relation to MSK practice. And we talk about how we might inadvertently trivialise, invalidate or stigmatise patients experiencing MSK pain. Finally, we discussed his ideas around approaching MSK colleagues who hold misconceptions or unhelpful beliefs or adopt outdated treatment models. So Kieran's been a frequently requested guest and it's clear why. I really enjoyed talking to Kieran. His calm, warm and wise words were really effective in charting a way forward to overcome some of the challenges of implementing a biopsychosocial approach to practice. I bring you Dr. Kieran O'Sullivan. Kieran, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, John. So it's brilliant to have you have you speak to me today. You were, I remember, I think I first came into contact or aware of you by, you're floating around YouTube somewhere, I think, in a couple of videos. Uh, there could be, not that many, hopefully, uh, but there, if they are there, I had a bit more hair. <laughs> So, so maybe just start by introducing yourself, your academic background, your clinical background. Yep, sure. So um, I'm a physiotherapist. I'm Irish. I trained and qualified as a physio uh, in 1999. So that seems like quite a long time ago. Um, and then after qualifying, I did the usual mix of things. I worked clinically for a while and went on to do some um, kind of a postgraduate training you know, with hindsight, it was interesting. My first kind of formal postgrad training was a, a certificate in manual therapy in Perth at Curtin University with Toby Hall, Kim Robinson, and so on. And one of the reasons I did that rather than anything else was that one thing I knew for certain is that I didn't want to do any research because research was boring and not in any way related to clinical practice and so on. That's the feedback we get every year at the end of our kind of research methods module. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I was that soldier for sure. And then... Um, you know, having done that course, it kind of, uh, at the time, like I was really enjoying 
the place I worked with, I worked with some really great people, but I wasn't sure about physio and whether the patients were getting better or not. And, and it all seemed a bit regimented in terms of we did this, I did the same thing for a lot of people and some of them got better and that was great, but a lot of them didn't and that was frustrating. Um, and so I went and met some interesting people there, Toby Kim, Peter O'Sullivan, Max Sussman, Bob LD, uh, all with different life experiences, but um, it got me kind of intrigued that there might be, it might be worth further study. So I went back there after a couple more years to do a master's in 2004, and again, got to spend some good time with people there, which was a great personal and professional, I suppose, development. And then I was fortunate that when I came back in 2005, a new physiotherapy program had just started in the local university in Limerick. And so since 2005, more or less, I've been lecturing in the university and then doing some clinical work, lecturing and research in the university and doing some clinical work part-time as well. And other than a short, brief trip to the Middle East for three years, that's where I've been for most of the last 15 years. There's a few UK-based, Irish-based physios have ended up in, in Curtin doing their postgraduate work. What is it just the case that you're looking through the kind of yellow pages of of postgraduate programs and that's there or is there some kind of relationship or memorandum or something yeah so um essentially there's, there's probably a couple of things in it i think look from a personal point of view australia is an attractive proposition for a lot of young people when they're in their 20s and so on so i the, the the draw of australia broadly was there and then i had asked a few people who had been to australia about the courses they had been to and at that time, the two big ones Irish physios were going to was the University of Queensland program and Curtin. Um, and so I ended up, it could have gone either way. I think one of the big things would have been the Curtin program was probably cheaper. It was down to that kind of pragmatic level of things. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, just a couple of hours closer. And of course, personally, you know, my wife or girlfriend at the time was happy to travel with me and so on. So there was a mix of things. And I guess, look, being honest, I would have signed up for the Masters, but not really been absolutely clear on what the um, the Masters would entail. So for example, there were things on that program that probably pushed me in directions that I wasn't comfortable with, but that's probably good as well. It's a bit like um, we've come back to talking to patients, but sometimes, you know, you have to bring them a little bit with you and give them a little bit of what they want, but also kind of um, tweak things and change things and surprise them a little bit as well. And so it was a Masters in Manipulative Physiotherapy, right? Yeah, that's right. That was the title. Now, again, I think it's still called Masters in Manipulative Therapy, and we would have done spinal manipulation as a part of that. But even at that stage, what, 16 years ago, there was a, it was it had evolved a lot probably from what might have been the old school manual therapy. And I, I think it was a nice mix of people. You know, you had people like the late Bob Elby from the iPhone manual therapy perspective, Mac, the late Max Zussman from a very much a contemporary pain physiology perspective, and Peter O'Sullivan, Steve Edmonston, lots of great people in that program. And there was a nice breadth of um, knowledge and perspectives. And of course, as a student, that can be challenging because you want to know or to hear that there's one answer. And one of the things that often comes up is if students detect a 5% difference between what you said or the tutor said and the, you know, the clinical placement person said. Um, and it's, I suppose, making students aware of it's okay that there are different opinions or perspectives, and equally acknowledging that if I'm marking an assignment, you know, there is an agreed marking scheme, if you know what I mean. But there are some things that are, we will say, almost right and wrong. And then there's some other things that are open for discussion. And so did you come away from that MSc feeling like a manual therapist or a literature therapist? Or did you, because you, I assume that the, the postgraduate program equipped you with skills that you otherwise didn't have? 
Yeah, for sure. And I would say personally me, no, but probably for two reasons. One thing is I um, my handling skills aren't that amazing. Even when we're doing like survival manipulations through a mix of cowardice and, and kind of clumsiness, I wasn't the, the best at popping necks and all the rest of it. Um, and then I suppose I wasn't really aware in countries like Norway that there was a manual purpose qualification. And yes, exactly. Yeah. And uh, and I wouldn't, and then it would have made me aware, all right, so the people that are really into manual therapy, they go further down this route. And I don't see that as a criticism of it. They become osteopaths or chiropractors. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, 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 exactly. But there, you know, it wasn't, um, it wasn't critical to my identity. I probably, without said, if I was going to say um, my identity, I probably put too much emphasis on movement retraining at that period of time. So I did my master's project in sitting posture. I still think it's important to look at how people move, but I think with hindsight, I would have overcomplicated it and maybe made people a little bit too aware of how they move. And then you decided to do a PhD in sitting to make it more complicated. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's it's something I'm still you know biased towards and and uh, and interested in. It's a bit like there's a contradiction in the fact that I think sitting posture and bending posture are nowhere near as important as people think. But because people think it's critical, it's a good way to um, challenge behaviors. And we talk about little behavioral experiments. But it's almost like if you want somebody to change their beliefs and their behaviors, it might be easier to convince them by looking at how pain relates to their sitting posture and bending rather than me trying to um, persuade them with my dulcet tones, you know, using some fancy metaphors. <laughs> well, that's, uh, that's this is where I went wrong with the whole podcast being called Words Matter, and I should have called it Experience Matters or, or, or you know. <laughs> well, it, it, but it is a, even like some of it is that interaction between things. Like we'll say, um, you know, when people hold themselves certain ways and bend certain ways, mm. even the words that you use to describe what they're doing. Like, for example, if somebody looks to me like they have fear avoidance, I generally wouldn't say to them that they are scared or you look fearful or petrified because that can sound judgmental and almost like you should man up and just take over it. Whereas I might use words around that looks slow and stiff and cautious and careful and, um, and what are you thinking about when you're doing that? So even when we are talking about the experience, you know, I've had some car crashes where I say the wrong thing and there's just no... There's no backpedaling. Yeah, and it, it seems like it's not either or, but it's like you said, it's an interaction of both mm. communication and, and kind of the, that action. Yeah. And so I'm interested in the time you spent in Qatar. And so, yeah, I'm interested how you how how that came about and also your experience, because you set up a spinal unit there, right? Or you were at least part in, in, in kind of organizing that. Yeah, so if I go back in time, um, Peter Sullivan has been a huge influence on my career, um, who is obviously at Curtin University, who is one of my PhD supervisors. And then Peter is a guy who would get asked for his professional opinion in lots of uh, ways. And one of the things is that there are people such as Rod Whiteley in this sports medicine hospital in Aspetar, and they would have approached Peter and people like Tim Mitchell who work with Peter around, uh, I suppose, developing a spinal pain pathway at Aspetar, where as a sports medicine facility, most of the emphasis was on soft tissue sprains, hamstrings, ACLs, and so on. And so then Peter, because he has a lot on his plate, said to me, look, why don't you talk to them about some things? Initially, it was around, well, do you want some advice on how to set up a spinal pain pathway? And then uh, basically over the course of about a year or two, um, they said, would you like to come over working here? 
And the first time they mentioned it, my wife was pregnant, I think. And then by the time we eventually decided to go, we had kids who were three and one. And again, from a personal point of view, it was a good time we felt to go because the kids were settled in school. They were starting to sleep through the nights. And we felt, as, as we still do now, that it's probably a bit trickier to move when they're in primary or high school and so on. So there was a, Peter's kind of um, throwing my name out there and then personally it being just an interesting thing to, to see. And again, I suppose in Ireland, I was lucky enough as a government employee to ask my university, look, will you let me go there? And, and so I was, I had the safety net that if it, if it all fell apart, I had a, a yeah. permanent job to come back to. And then the experience there was very interesting. Like, you know, the positives, met some great people. Culturally, it was interesting working with a vast range of um, different countries and languages. Um, and even, you know, we could talk about like what an osteopath is in different countries varies massively. What a physio, um, so mm-hmm. it's mind-blowing to me how different the training was. You know, we could have arguments about somebody being born biomedical or not, but even the basic undergraduate training of physios varied an awful lot. And again, from a personal point of view, it was very well paid, family friendly. Like I don't think I've ever had or ever will have work-life balance like it in terms of working hours and so on. Uh, but then in terms of the experience there, clinically it was different, like positives in one sense is that there was no waiting list. It's a mm. private sports medicine facility. But then that's good. You can see people quickly and you might think you could intervene quickly. But it was also a complication that there was no waiting list for anything. So if you wanted an MRI, you can get it today and surgery, you can have it tomorrow and injection and all that kind of stuff. And there were some, on the one sense, a very affluent population, lots of them, but equally lots of stresses um, related to your role in family, society, how much autonomy you have, you know, a, a range of things. Um, a major issue with sedentary lifestyles and dietary stuff and even sleeping habits, which are a particular pressure around times like Ramadan and so on. Yeah. But even just in terms of the, the weather, the weather for a great part of the year is so hot that it's very hard to be socializing during the daytime. So habitually people socialize at, you know, um, like from late in the evening until 2 a.m. in the morning and get up for prayer at maybe 5, 6 a.m. in the morning. And so here in Ireland, we would probably say that napping for a prolonged period of time in the day isn't good because it disturbs your night's sleep. But if you can say that a person will only ever sleep four hours at night, it's pretty hard to say they shouldn't nap, you know, for an hour or two in the day. So there's, there's, there's a, it was a good reminder that, you know, you should have a strategy, but then culture still kind of trumps strategy for the clash. Um, but I, I had a great time and it, it reminded me of the importance, I suppose, of, you know, understanding the organization you work in and the culture you work in. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've got friends and colleagues that have worked in that part of the world, UAE, Dubai, and Bahrain. And it, it seemed, you know, culturally, medically, culturally quite different. The resources are often infinite and you, know, you can pretty much have anything you want on tap, whether it's MRIs or injections. And patients that have come from those regions to me to see me over here again, there's some expectations around around having those sorts of procedures. But there's also, I guess, as a result of, of some of that medical environment growing up, they're still looking for reasonably quick fixes and kind of large, quite strong biomedical leads around their problems. Oh, yes. There was a huge biomedical emphasis in the country as a whole and the culture. And even in terms of, we'll probably come back to it later on, in terms of like how the healthcare is funded. Essentially, everything is its basically a privatized mm-hmm. system where every person coming in, you know, brings some money with them. And so there's a huge incentive, like even when our kids would get a snotty nose or something where we would decide to get them 
take the doctor, I would leave almost against my will, but I would leave with a big bag of medications and all the rest of it, which, you know, the either the healthcare system, doctors, pharmacists, but they could bill for lots yeah. of things. So, you know, there was there was a huge range of incentives to generate income or expenditure in healthcare. I'm just going to, at this point, just going to put a shout out to a friend and a colleague, uh, Noor Abdal, who did her PhD with me at Brighton. She's a Kuwaiti physiotherapist and looked at kind of pain identities within, I think it was Kuwaiti women. They're experiencing persistent, I think, back pain or, or MSK pain, but did a lovely uh, thesis with you know really rich interviews from, from these participants. And there's, like you said, you know, from a Western perspective, the biosuccession model makes kind of reasonable sense to us, but trying to kind of take that and kind of cookie cutter it into a, a completely different culture with completely different norms and social expectations and kind of family expectations, it, it's quite challenging. It is quite challenging. And even in terms of like, we'll say it would have been very few females that I would have seen if I did see a female patient. It was typically Western or if it was um, somebody from the Middle East, it would have been with, you know, several approvals of a typically family members, line managers, and so on. And that just changes a little bit of the dynamic as well. And, you know, I uh, got to remember, I was a stranger with a funny accent and the different skin color and, you know, a different perspective. So, you know, it's, it's interesting when, you know, I come back to Ireland and I'm the local guy and uh, it makes you think about the things we take for granted about being the outsider. And so moving on to your work, or maybe your more recent work, it's kind of largely, or has been, quite a bit around some of the psychosocial factors relating to largely persistent back pain, right? Maybe just initially how you think or your experience, your sense of how back pain care has changed. I mean, the biosuccession model has obviously been around for a few decades now. Most, I want this anecdotal, but most people seem to have heard about it. But I just wonder how you think, you know, the the dent that that model is making and the dent that the evidence is making in in regards to people's management of back pain, whether you've detected a, a shift in in practice or shift in in management i think only because you, i think you're mostly on twitter um but if you ever delve into the other the other dark sides of social media you you get a sense that it hasn't changed at all in terms of some of the the posts and videos that people put on about managing back pain yeah and, and that's why the first thought when you say that is almost like it depends on who you're talking to uh, <laughs> even if you look at for example we'll do some pieces that are pitched to a certain extent at the, the general public and if I look at the feedback we get in the comment section, which is always a high-risk search strategy, but if you look at what happens in the comment section, the comments you'll get on maybe the, yeah, with the equivalent of the Guardian or the Times of yeah. Independent here versus Twitter, they can be similar. But then if you go to Facebook and Instagram and all these yeah. other things, like you know, you can you could read the comments and say these people must be talking about different articles, you know. So I would say if we look at the biosexual model being around, there's a lot of people aware of it, and I would say aligning with it, um, but I would say there's still a lot of lip service to it. And I, I know there is, it's kind of become popular for some people, again, to kind of say that the pendulum has gone too far and it's gotten too much around, you know, going down the psychosocial approach. Now, I think there's two different things. I would be totally okay with somebody saying that all these newfangled, complicated treatments, they're not blowing the old treatments out of the water in terms of effectiveness. And I think that's actually a fair argument that will say, as it stands right now, if you did any big systematic review, it's not as if you can say the traditional treatments are much more in much more inferior to the newer treatments. I think that's a fair argument. Mm-hmm. However, I would push back strongly against the argument that um, the biosexual approach is common practice. Like 
I think um, mm. if somebody goes to uh, the average person in Ireland, Middle East, I would argue probably in Britain, if they go to see somebody with back pain, the default mode is still biomedical care. And that's almost justifiable if you're if the person comes in reporting trauma. But we've got people with persistent pain where there was never trauma or where there was trauma a long time ago. And the broader bisexual support is an afterthought when all else has failed so we may as well try this other thing because, you know, it's either this or a spinal cord stimulator. You know, we're, we're at the end of the line. But the default position or the default orientation of the clinician is, is still often going to buy medical, right? It's still looking at... Oh, yeah, for sure. And and when I hear criticisms of it, again, it's like, it, it's almost like these terrible things where I think um, if somebody says, well, look, this bisexual approach, it's made a mistake. Look at this thing ending up badly where this person, they thought they had you know, fibromyalgia and they had a tumor or an aneurysm or something. When I look at those rare examples, all I see is number one, bad practice or very rare outliers that just don't fit with what we know because nobody really understands persistent pain completely. Um, and so there might be, you know, a child, like if you look at it, it's September, there's going to be children with stomach aches going into school for a whole range of reasons. Are we going to insist on, um, you know, a scope or an MRI scan for every child with stomach ache or every person with headache? So there will be a chance to know you will see somebody and to kind of say they, we miss something that could be a, a serious yeah. biomedical thing. But I don't know that that means we should therefore scan every single person or treat every single person yeah. biomedic. Um, I think we have, it's way too early to say we've gone too far down the psychosocial aspect. I think one of the challenges is that the things people like me are trying to do in terms of applying a biosocial model care I would still say we're only scratching the surface. That what I'm calling yeah. a complex, multi-dimensional intervention is still not touching any of the social aspects, not touching any yeah. of the systemic aspects, and we probably need to make it much bigger. Uh, so if you look at the example we said about, um, say, Qatar, if you we could talk about um, you know the systemic challenges there in terms of cultural beliefs, in terms of the way healthcare is funded, and it's very hard to implement any clinic-based one-to-one intervention that can outdo or kind of compete with it. So you're you're in education too. You you work as a, as, a, as a senior lecturer and I'm in education too. And I, I pretty much would defy any either of us to kind of go through the education institutions in Ireland or the UK, whether it's physio, chiro, osteo, and look at their curricula. Almost certainly the BPS would be threaded, BPS model would be threaded throughout, you know, every corner of that curriculum or curricula. Is it the case that these are just dinosaurs still still um, providing these kind of biomedical interventions or these biomedical frameworks and we've just got to wait for these guys to kind of retire or 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 die out and this kind of younger generation who have been taught by you and i they'll just carry this bps flag across through i don't so but, but that doesn't make sense because the bps model has been embedded in curriculum for a fair old time now it's not like it's a it's a novel it's a it's a novel thing to place into education. yeah yeah no, it's a great question and, and i and uh I, I will hear those conversations. I think there's a few things. I think while the bisexual model has been around for a while, even when I was in college a long time ago, you know, this stuff was discussed. But I would say, and this still happens a bit, what's touched on in the module handbooks and the lectures doesn't really reflect what's happening in clinical practice a lot of the time. And you've got issues there about academia needs to sit with practice educators and so on and find a balance or a consistent message. So that's partly on us and partly on clinical practice. Um, I think as well, a lot of the time, this happens quite frequently. The lecturers are people who haven't seen patients in years, 
and therefore rightly or wrongly don't have much yeah. input. And so it's easy for students to think, well, that's fine in theory, but in practice you need to do A, B, and C. And that's where I think having clinical lectures or people who move between academia and practice is useful. I'm biased to think that, of course. Um, and then equally then we'll say there is probably some criticism of how we describe the biopsychosocial model in that when if somebody heard us saying we're going to talk about this, they'll say, all right, so these guys don't want to do any physical examination. They don't believe in exercise. They don't believe in manual therapy. They just want to talk, get the person to lie down and talk about their childhood, whether they were bullied when they were a seven-year-old. And that's not at all what we're talking about. There's nothing at all about the bio, psychosocial model that ignores the bio, but tries to better understand, well, if somebody is moving that way or actually not moving that way, why is that? And are there things around it? And I would say that applies to very structural, biomechanical, biomedical conditions as well as everything else. So I used to, when I was a, an athlete playing Gaelic football, I used to have recurrent shoulder dislocations. And and I had lots of problems. It lasted far too long. And I had surgery. But a big part of it with hindsight was what you would now call hypervigilance or kinesiophobia. I was, if you asked me, I would have said I wasn't afraid of it, but I was thinking about it all the time. Every time I went to catch the ball over my head, I was thinking about it. And other people would say to me, you're minding your shoulder. Um, now, that was a very structural orthopedic injury, but there was clear psychological components to my ongoing disability. Um, and again, I'm not sure that the treatment for that needed to be a big um, educational component, but just for me to understand that these things are connected. So there's multiple aspects to that. Sorry. Yeah, no, I was going to say, and just getting on to the kind of, the, we can call them barriers and facilitators to people adopting the ABPS approach. And I think one is that you touched on is this kind of this misconception that a biopsychosocial model really just causes you to adopt largely kind of psychological strategies and counseling techniques. And it kind of throws all the kind of, I guess, the, the hands-on skills or the anatomical knowledge that you develop that kind of throws it out the window and you become a, a kind of essentially some kind of counselor. But what are some of the other bar barriers that you've experience and we can discuss some of the things that have come about in some of the literature and quality research that's been done what are your thoughts about perhaps other reasons why people aren't taking up a bps approach yeah cool i think um i suppose a couple of things come to mind first of all i think just it's not a big part of our training so some of that especially people from maybe who have been in the profession for a long time it's just an innocent kind of a lack of awareness where it's not explored enough i would say as we get down into more recent years it's active resistance where people have said look i've spent so much time and money and effort becoming an expert on x uh and this like i'm not changing now you know either because i think it's a waste of time or actually i might have a conflict of interest um another barrier is that it's hard and often not what patients expect and you know we'll all mm. have days where i feel like i'm having a similar conversation with five people in a row and how much in a friday afternoon do i want to be getting into, into another battle Let's just give them what they want. You know, we're all human. Yeah. And then as I've touched on as well, you've got the system just might reward you. Now again, in Ireland and probably in the NHS, it's the barriers aren't as big, but there are lots of countries where um, you know, you won't get rewarded as well in many different ways. Like if you want to be in Ireland or Britain or lots of countries, kind of stay as a commission, but increase your level of expertise, the type of roles where you get call them extended scope or advanced practice, a lot of those roles tend yeah. to be in biomedical roles where instead of becoming very good at the psychosocial aspect, you'll be expected to be good at scans and injections and so on. And these are important things. I don't want to be dismissive of them, but there are, I would imagine if I did an audit of 
pharmacophysio um, osteo roles that are extended scope, it's very much biomedical role than biopsychosocial. Yeah. And then if you want to look at um, lots of countries, America would be one example, Qatar would be as well, where the things that are funded uh, are often biomedical. So for example, if you, in some countries, if you want to do manual therapy and exercise and take and you'll get paid a little bit extra for doing all of them. Or if you want to do a treatment like, like even if you're going to do an injection, PRP is a lot more um, financially rewarding than just getting local anesthetic, despite not being yeah. any better. So there's, and so within that, then there are all the barriers. I think that reflects the range of solutions. And so I suppose if you wanted to criticize what we've been doing, I think we spent a lot of time and effort trying to educate the public, trying to educate clinicians. And that's not easy and it's not been very successful. But equally, you have to go beyond that and look at societal expectations and funding models. And if you look at somewhere like Keel, for example, with the Starpack intervention, that's probably come at it from a different perspective. So, for example, they did train the clinicians, but the big perspective they brought was almost kind of controlling how much treatment and who got the types of treatment. And there are downsides and limitations to that. But it is at least almost kind of not letting perverse incentives of the system kind of um, complicate things further. And it's also, I think you're quite right in this. You mentioned professional identity and your professional identity early on. And and you'll know something about the students enrolling into the degree that you teach on will have certain expectations about this kind of stuff that they're going to learn and the kind of professional they're going to end up being and the sorts of skills and expertise that they're going to acquire during the course and, and post uh, post-graduation. And I think at least, you know, speaking from osteopathy, osteopathy has been traditionally a manual-based therapy using kind of technical hands-on skills and applying anatomy and biomechanics. And I think many students enroll onto a program thinking, well, that's really what constitutes a good osteopath is developing those skills. Hmm. And then, you know, at some point in their course, you start saying, well, actually, there's a whole other range of strategies and techniques and whole other framework called the biopsychological model. And so I think... It's something about the expectations of students coming onto these programs and maybe the challenge for them to to shift their expectations or their identities as they're going through. Hmm. And again, we'll see. So, for example, at the moment, I'm like yourself teaching and setting up some practical assessments and, and, and all that. And, you know, you can have discussions around how much emphasis do we put on manual handling and, uh, or sorry, manual therapy, manual techniques. But I would say even if you look at, people like Peter Sullivan, who would probably be considered to be not from the manual therapy tradition now at this stage, because he's spent such a long time looking at the mm. other more active approaches. But he developed um, great handling skills and would still use those from time to time. So for example, way back 10 years ago, I went over to Perth for a while with him. And one of the things I used to do was just sit in his clinic and watch patients. And even at that time, I was interested how much time he would spend assessing soft tissues. Now, the patients might have thought he was doing something much more sophisticated, but he was still spending a lot of time and attention on the resistance and the tension and the words he was using around helping the person explore, well, how does that feel? And, well, that shoulder feels tight and that one doesn't and why? And, you know, exploring, does that happen? And what happens when somebody rubs yeah. it or stretches it if the person's saying that helps? And then them saying, well, when they stretch it or rub it, it feels nice and soft and relaxed and, and the pain is better. And then getting into discussions around, well, so... Are you saying that when that's nice and soft and relaxed, the pain is less? So, you know, even these manual therapy things, there's a still a huge value in in kind of um, showing to the patient I'm competent. So, for example, if, if I want somebody who has back pain or knee pain to trust me, 
that come with me, listen to what I'm saying and do these exercises, if I am at some point going to put my hands in them, it won't really help matters if I'm clumsy and awkward and, and I seem incompetent. You have to look, at, at least give the impression of being competent, whether you are or not. And so there's value in having confidence in that. And like, if I'm going to tell somebody to bend their back into lots of flexion and load within that flexion, even from my own point of view, I want to be confident that I can load that back pretty well because you can't bluff that kind of confidence. So if I'm going to tell people, no, that mm-hmm. knee is all right, load it, push it, I think it's good that I can put my hands on their leg and check their ligaments and, you know, check that end range. It's not really provocative. But in terms of that being a key part of my identity, it's tricky because if, let's say, we jump forward 50 years and you and I might consider it a great success that um, the biosexual model is now implemented, people get that it's all active approaches. And then they're saying, so now I'm just going to go to a sports scientist because I don't need to see an osteo or a physio. You know, we might let a little bit of our professional identity yeah. and insecurities contaminate that as well but if that's the worst that happens you know the people who want to be physios or osteos will still find a role because there's so much more even when we talk about like i advocate the role of exercise but i don't in any sense uh, get the have a fear that existing sports and strength conditioning training is going to um, sort out musculoskeletal pain because as far as i can see it's still fundamentally structural and biomedical and it's in itself and do you teach manual therapy skills in your current role? Yeah. So uh, actually, before uh, we chatted this morning, I'm doing a very bland audio recording over, and we're looking at pavings, passive accessories, and passive physiological. And within that, it's almost like we could throw in things like electrotherapy and that. Like, yeah. you know, to what extent should these things be on a curriculum, and then what emphasis do you give them? And so, without saying this is right or wrong, for example. I would be advocating that students should hear about electrotherapy and should get a critical evaluation of it. This is what the evidence says about it. Um, but it should be covered. But now I'd have to check, but I'd say they might do four or six hours in total of electrotherapy practical in their years. And that's mostly so they are familiar with the machine and they'll see it in placement. Mm. And uh, the reason I would suggest we keep some of that there is that I don't want them going out in placement having never heard of this stuff and thinking it's magic. Mm. And in the same way, we don't assess passive physiological movements in the spine um, for two reasons. The reliability is pretty poor, and physically they're quite demanding. There's probably more efficient ways we can assess spinal mobility, but we do talk about them. So, and we show them in the handbook saying, look, you'll see people doing this. We're not saying this is devil's work or anything, but like there's other things we can do. Whereas AIMS, passive accessory, will be taught and will be assessed in a practical exam. Um, and we talk about what you can and can't tell. Mm. That makes sense. You know, I feel sorry for sorry for you, but I, I used to teach manual therapy technique a little bit, and I, I had this. I mentioned this the other day in a, in a podcast I did to myself that to disaggregate the anatomy or the kind of specifics of anatomy and biomechanics from. So how you talked about you know Peter Sullivan kind of using manual skills in a much more kind of psycho behavioral framework. Hmm. That that that's one thing, but I think when you're teaching, you know. And passive examination, you've got to also teach the orientation of the facet joints, the kind of structure, the joint capsule, some of the tissues, you know, anteriorly, posteriorly, laterally that will kind of limit some of the movements. And then you start to kind of it's kind of muddy through this kind of biomedical terrain. And so and so that's how this, at least to my mind or my experience, that's how we present the techniques to students. But then we expect to shift to this more psychobehavioral model, perhaps. Yeah, no, that's a good good follow-up question, I suppose, in the yeah, just to be clear on that, for example, 
if um, somebody from a manual therapy perspective, strong manual therapy advocate, saw the level of detail providing about what we're teaching and feeling, you know, they'd be probably pretty horrified. Because essentially what we're saying is that, you know, if you're pushing on something here and it might be sore, it might be stiff, and that's all you can tell. Um, so there's very little detail, even, for example, in terms of like, you know, I remember at one point studying upper cervical spine biomechanics in quite a lot of detail and what alignments different joints were and passage joints and all the rest of it. Whereas they would do a, a initial anatomy, pathoanatomy, but again, increasingly that's just wrong. Mm. This is the tissues in the body. This is how they evolve over time. You can have big biomedical traumas and so on, but uh, uh, nowhere near the detail I would have learned in terms mm. of degenerative processes and what we used to call pathology. And I spoke to Ben Darlow a few months ago back, and he said something similar that he went into his original training was, you know, that he learned the detail in terms of behind some of the the manual interventions, and he's unable to unlearn that stuff. So we're now in a position of privilege where we can, we've kind of forgotten that stuff where it's kind of, you know, tacit in in our practice. And so we can kind of say, well, I I don't use that knowledge. I just do some psychobehavioral, you know, touchy touchy thing um, but it's hard to say isn't it to what extent that knowledge that we acquired so early on is informing Pete's psychobehavioral you know yeah so we've had discussions on a similar vein about like if you were starting a trial on what we call the biosexual approach to back pain in the morning what kind of therapist do you want in it and I have two contradictory views I would say on the one sense I almost want a clean slate of fresh enthusiastic optimistic you know fresh graduates who are full of enthusiasm, completely green, and who haven't been contaminated by people like me in the past and, and you know, come with my bad ideas. Um, and so I think there's huge advantage in that because um, they haven't become disillusioned by struggles and all the rest. As against that then, if they were actually involved in triaging patients and they have no clinical mileage and they don't have that, what we might call the the ability to have a clinical suspicion about something that is rare or worrying, that would be a problem. Because what you want is, you know, rightly and wrongly, even if you saw somebody who has maybe practice that is not ideal, after working as a clinician for 15 to 20 years, you do get some ability to sense when things aren't quite right and when to accelerate things and get a bit more concerned. And I think I would like that ability to identify the scary stuff, the the rare outliers that this, this doesn't sound right something something not quite right here but then go with the uh uncomplicated enthusiastic and eagerness of a young graduate where where you're saying look we're gonna get this person to move their back for example a little bit freer and more confident more naturally rather than thinking about it i'm gonna look at the big picture stuff what are they thinking what are they doing what are they socializing how's the sleep and the diet and all that stuff um and i don't know how you get that balance right you know, and, I, and again, I suppose one of the things I often talk about in terms of training physios is that I'm quite confident and comfortable that you can have very different personalities doing a really good job. And I don't think we should try and replicate somebody else when it's not their style. Like, I'm never going to be telling jokes like Lorimer Mosley, who is both brilliant mm-hmm. but also charismatic. And Peter O'Sullivan has the ability, I would say, to be remarkably confrontational while smiling and laughing. You know, I think I've seen other people try to re- challenge beliefs as firmly as him, and it could be actually it mightn't go down well at all. So I can think of physios I've seen involved in trials where one of them is a, a tremendously charismatic character and can chat and tell jokes and is the life and soul of the party, 
Uh, and that's his way to, to connect with the patients and other uh, physios where they are quiet, shy, no jokes, maybe slightly serious, but a wonderful listener and where mm. the patients tell them absolutely everything and they really get to know their patients. And I think both approaches are fine because on their notes, they might write the same thing, but they're getting there just using their own strength. So you mentioned, and it was it was something I wanted to ask about, was whether or not the pendulum has swung too far and, and there's an argument to say that we're all becoming um, kind of meditative counsellors and moving away from the true bones of MSK. But in terms of biomedical factors, biomechanical factors in relation to, to back pain, is that for, for many, it's a bit of an all or nothing. So it's either all biomedical factors, and you know we can explain people's you know development of back pain purely through kind of biomechanics and anatomy or pathanatomy, or it's none of that, and the pendulum, pendulum swings the other way, and it's all psychosocial. But invariably, it's an interaction and combination of all three, which is dependent on the individual person. But I guess the question I have is, it's tempting, it's almost easier to just to forget about the biological stuff because there's a concern that the minute that's introduced with patients, or rather you've got to be very cautious how you introduce the biological components or aspects of their problem, because you've got to frame it a certain way. I mean, you've got to frame all this stuff a certain way, haven't you? Even the psych and social stuff. But I guess, you know, for example, if a patient uh, has MRI scan, it shows some changes on their, on their spine, you've got to make a, and it might well be relevant or kind of salient to their pain, but how you, how much, how relevant it is, it can be really a real challenge to present it in a way which is neither harmful in terms of fear and threat, but also not dismissing it at all as a clinical entity or uh, consumptive movement. Yeah. So if I give you one example of when we were in Qatar, it was probably irrelevant because it was quite a common thing. Um, we would see a big population of young adolescent boys who develop back um, so they've got the Aspire Academy, it's kind of a hothouse for training young footballers and lots of them will go through a period of being very sedentary in the summer and then they come back in and they train very hard and lots of them get, you know, uh, acute training load, strains and sprains but lots of back pain and in that population, uh, especially when you examine them you'd be more convinced but there's quite a high probability that they have a pars defect or some kind of bone marrow edema in their back. Now the challenge for me is that on the one sense, I would think that it's good to confirm there's bone marrow edema there if I could control what is used, what that information is used for and, and how it's interpreted. So my, if I had total control of the world, for example, <laughs> like those young boys specifically, to be able to identify, yeah, look, this is what we're dealing with. You've got this level of bone marrow edema and I would be able to hopefully reassure them that, see, there's a reason you have your pain. We understand it. I'm not freaked out about it. What we're going to do is back off your load and then we're going to monitor you over time and build you back up. No big dramas. However, in the real world, there is a risk there or in general that if we start that, the person on that kind of treadmill, it doesn't stop. Mm. Oh my goodness, they've got a broken bone in their back. Well, if the bone is broken, we have to immobilize you in a cast or a brace, even though you know, the evidence for that is very dodgy. And then if, that, if it isn't healed in six or eight weeks, maybe you should consider surgery even though we know the evidence says actually bony healing doesn't really seem weirdly to affect outcome. And so there are some of the things where I don't really have an answer where I would absolutely think the biological nociceptive input is a key part of explaining the pain. And this is a big if, but if you can control and moderate how that's interpreted, then I think that's reasonable. But we have to be careful of how other people will influence that. And again, I think it comes back almost to your role in an organization. So if I'm the head of sports medicine in a professional football club 
where I am kind of the decision maker of who we're sending them to, I think I'm in a stronger position to push. But if you're a small pagan and a bigger organization, it's harder because it, you know, the ultimate decision maker might have a different perspective. I think um, on the broader issue, I suppose, how these interact, you know, it's, it's one of the things I often use with patients and I've kind of told the story a lot, but I like using little examples like the role of um, cultures in terms of explaining the interaction between biological and psychosocial. So I used to joke that, you know, when, the, when our first kid was born, I got a cold sore a month later, and while my wife was complaining about various bits and pieces, I was traumatized by having a cold sore. But uh, the positive about those kind of things is that it, people are broadly familiar with the idea that you can have a, a cold sore for a real biological reason, like a virus, but it only affects you when you're run down and psychologically vulnerable or sleep deprived, etc. And we're also comfortable, actually, with the idea of controlling hypertension and cardiovascular disease by looking at diet and exercise, but also stress and so on. We're, we're probably not as good as kind of um, understanding that connection with things like manual handling. So again, your own work and Dave Nolan's work, which you had on the podcast a while ago, yeah. there's quite a bit of kind of um, data at this stage suggesting that manual handling training uh, is still coming from a very protective angle, that, you know, we must be very careful about bending or avoid it. Um, and that could be um, you know, I think that could be part of the problem at this stage. Um, and I don't think it's reasonable or feasible to tell people just don't bend anymore. And for most other things, we would actually say, well, if you're going to do this thing, running or anything else, probably a good idea to practice it, maybe get good at it, maybe even progress it over time. Um, acknowledging that some people will still get sore, um, but I don't know that that means they'll get disabled forever. Yeah. I think when I challenge manual handling, though, sometimes people might think well, that means also you think we should just throw people in the deep and let, let them all bend. Whereas my perspective would be, well, no, if I had three hours with these people, rather than scaring them about having to do something that they have to do anyway, could I talk to them about the importance of being conditioned enough to do it? And then if you get sore, well, we might just have to practice it more as opposed to making them angry with their employer and setting them up for frustration injustice and all that kind of thing. but that's a that's hard isn't it I mean, it's so much easier to do either or and just say it's either it's all about you know keeping a straight back or it's none about keeping a straight back but the minute you you have to take a much more nuanced yeah. and, and and life can be like that uh social media can definitely be like that you're on my team or you're on the opposition and life is rarely about the black and the white but the gray um, and you only have to look at the massive debates that are happening around the world about COVID to see how some people, in the absence of certainty, can can absolutely take a, a, a position of certainty, which, you know, mm. in a few years' time, maybe we'll understand this whole situation a bit better. You've spoken about, and I think it was on one of your, your YouTube videos floating around, about dis, about stigmatising or dismissing people's pain. So I think that the one of the risks with a more psychosocial approach is that you just reassure patients and say this isn't you know there's no harm there's no damage you're fine get on with it and patients as a result feel dismissed or or invalidated and i just wanted if you wanted to say something about how, how clinicians shouldn't shouldn't maybe how they're inadvertently either dismissing or stigmatizing people with back pain and how not to do that cool so look we've all we've all done it in in many ways i think again it can come across as being very critical when I say like people mightn't handle this well, to I suppose it's important to acknowledge then that one of the biggest reasons I see this going badly is time. People are in a hurry. 
uh, they've got loads of patients to see them in and out of place every 30 minutes. And, you know, if we think about the people where addressing some of these elephants in the room are most important, they're often people with big stories and big histories, and it's really hard to avoid the the um, temptation to interrupt them and just get to the nuts and bolts of what's going on very quickly. So I think systemically we need to probably acknowledge that some patients where their beliefs and their attitudes are a big part of their pain, sometimes the first assessment might just be if the system allows making some kind of personal connection and telling them, look, I think we need to spend more time at this and we're going to come back and go for more time the next day. And I appreciate that not every system makes that possible. I think then that fits in with the data we've seen in some studies where when you look at why patients are pissed off with physios, doctors, and osteos, it's generally for things like they didn't listen, they ignored me, they didn't take me seriously. And when you drill into that, a lot of that comes down to like, um, you know, not paying attention getting some of the details wrong and again being too busy documenting and taking notes and all all the stuff that you can see for various reasons it turns up so it's one of the most important things when somebody has seen you the first day i think is still just getting a sense at the end that at least do they think you've listened to them i would really put an emphasis on them feeling like they told you a lot of stuff and got a lot of stuff off their chest and then even if you don't get to do an awful lot with them so that they feel i'm going to use that information sensibly so for example you know, do I use questionnaires or not? I'm, I'm fine with clinicians using them or not, but if you're going to use them, make sure it's clear to the patient why you're doing it. It's not just for it being nosy yeah. or for some, you know, a secret project that it's really so I better understand you. And if I'm going to ask you to do things that are a bit unusual, like moving unusual ways, or specifically asking them things that seem irrelevant, like sometimes I've had patients where they bring up stuff that say, oh, it's irrelevant. There's no point getting into that. And that's often the most relevant stuff. What with their divorce or their business going bankrupt? What that possibly have to do with their back pain? So we jump in there with erectile dysfunction, thinking about quadriquina syndrome, and they're thinking, well, yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's nothing to do with, you know, my, my sore back or my, my yeah. scan. So, so I think when things are handled badly, I think a lot of time it comes down to rushing and time pressures and just not giving people time to talk. So it's, and again, that doesn't mean it's all we need to do. But uh, if we if we want to really understand our patients, especially the ones where it's more disabling, more complex, we've got to give them time. And I don't have a, a get-out clause for, you know, how, well, if you don't have time, what do you do? Again, I think we over-treat lots of routine things. I think a lot of routine acute pain should be seen for shorter periods of time and less frequently and left well enough alone. In contrast, I can't see how we take people with complex back pain and comorbid health conditions and lots of different aches and pains and fatigue and mental problems. I don't know anything out there that solves their problem in a short and simple manner. And I think there's probably a lot of value in keeping them away from harm because they can be subjected to a huge number of investigations, not just the musculoskeletal ones, but all the other scopes and investigations that they can, you know, that can be justified if you're chasing individual symptoms. I mean, you, you're spot on with, with time. So I work in the private sector, in private practice, and you know, 98% of osteopaths work in the private sector. And the same, I think, with chiropractors. I don't know what, what the situation with physiotherapists. And time is something which I have lots of. But what's interesting, with at least with, with an osteopathy, it turns out that the, the more experience you get, the shorter your time slots for appointments because you just become expert. You're far more efficient. And, you know, you haven't got to bumble around writing notes or doing lots of examinations. You just get, you know, so often half an hour slots is, the, is a follow-up appointment. And and so for me, I, I run an hour 
uh, appointment for the first time and then 45 minutes. So I am, I'm like a snail in clinical practice. And I love the fact, I'm, I'm fortunate that it's my own practice. I can take as long as I want and I can give people as, as much time as, as, I, as they want or as I feel is needed. But I think for, for many clinicians, it's about they shorten their time because they now feel that their ex, their expertise is higher so they can be much more efficient. And I think to some extent that's true. You become more um, kind of slick in terms of some of the clinical examination, but almost certainly, you know, for, for a half an hour appointment, thinking about how practitioners split that half an hour up, you've got five minutes potentially getting undressed if they get undressed. I mean, you've just got so little time to really listen and to really have a conversation with. And most of it's just going to, at least from the perspective of osteopathy, is to jam in as much manual therapy as you can. Um, and the talking bit is kind of done, you know, if it's done at all, while on the couch, face down in their underwear. Yeah. And again, like, it's not that we, you know, anybody's got the, the answer to that. So, for example, a lot of that will have parallels with physio in Ireland. Um, and I think even if you have a patient where, you know, they've said things that always help them is, let's say it's manual therapy or taping or whatever it is, I don't have a philosophical problem with that being provided at the start while you're getting to know them and while you're managing their symptoms and so on. Um, and again, often with some of those patients, a lot of the storytelling will happen while you're doing a technique and while they're relaxing because it's almost a way of kind of sneaking in and surprising them to a certain extent that they didn't see it coming. So I think those challenges will, will persist for quite a while. Um, so again, that's why I, I would say, again, I suppose reflecting with hindsight, We've got to train clinicians, we've got to educate the public, but we really have to look at some of those systemic issues around how we handle time and so on. And again, it depends on almost, this comes back to we've, we've created a rod for our own back, as they say, in terms of if I'm going to tell the health service, the reason I'm really good is because of my manual therapy or my PRP injection, we'll say that's fine, so we'll prioritize that part. But that takes five minutes, so then you can see patients every 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. In contrast, if I'm going to tell the NHS or the health service providers, the insurers, the reason they want to send me is I've got these great manual skills and I'll really figure out the minority who need X, Y, or Z because they need the complexity. And then the really good stuff I'm getting is I can blend that biomedical screening with great lifestyle advice yeah. and coaching and so on. But obviously that takes a bit more time. And, and I think not that the psychologists have got it all figured out, but if you look at how they set up their time and, and, and their billing, we can learn a lot from them in terms of, you know, have you seen too many clinical psychologists offering appointments at 9 p.m. on a Friday night? Uh, I don't, and I don't see them trying to squeeze in patients every 15 or 20 minutes. But that's because we all accept societally, well, if you're going to see a psychologist, that'll take time. Yeah. And I'll have to take time out of my work. And, and I see um, a lot of physios, chiros, osteos who are doing great things with patients and talking to a lot of their patients about work-life balance and making time for exercise and family, but doing it while working crazy hours, running themselves into the ground, but telling everybody else to, to look after themselves. It's something I also wanted to ask, kind of related to that, was, I mean, the extreme of that is that there are professions in the UK or clinics in the UK that have a large space with curtained sections, if you like, and they're running you know, pretty much in and out appointments to have adjustments. And, and so that's the, kind of the worst of the worst. But in, in the, you know, thinking about the Lancet papers, one of the, one of the uh, I can't remember which, which one of the three it was, but it said something around, you know, it said addressing kind of the widespread misconceptions amongst the public, but also amongst colleagues in relation to kind of outdated and kind of ineffective treatment models. What Do you have any, I'm not good at it, addressing colleagues or or 
co-workers but colleagues and misconceptions or kind of poor practice or less than ideal practice and beliefs do you have any tips to to make me kind of less unpopular with my with my uh, yeah, so I suppose if we look at the broad idea of that, like if you have physios or practitioners who are practicing a certain way that might be considered a little outdated and how we bring them around to it, I'd say there's, I'm, I'm reminded of one time Peter was in Limerick doing a workshop and he had seen a patient and a lot of that involved talking to the patient about their feelings. It was a particularly kind of a emotional encounter, we'll say. And one of the physios at the course said, look, I don't know, but like for me, I'm not that comfortable talking about emotions and all that. And Peter's kind of a cheeky but kind of snarky comment was, well, how do, your, how do your own family feel about that? In terms of like, mm-hmm. you'll say, you know, some of this is just the stuff we talk about with friends and family and so on. But if we have somebody that's probably a bit resistant, I would say there's two very different angles you could go with. Acknowledging that neither are easy and they won't always work in terms of you could try and persuade them or force them. So if we start from the assumption that, you know, this is a well-motivated healthcare professional, there's prioritizing the interests of their patients, they're not motivated by greed or money. Um, I don't think that showing them forest plots of a meta-analysis is going to work. I don't think hectoring them is going to work. But I think seeing patients with them and getting patient stories together might help. And exploring with your own patients or their patients why some treatments work and some treatments don't, and almost kind of getting them to be aware of that. Um, So almost making them feel if you want to look at like incorporating the psychosocial aspects, getting them to explain why I think this is important. I really don't think papers alone explain that. Um, if we look at, for example, around issues around, um, I suppose I found out what, instead of persuading them and forcing them, I think we've got to set up the system to help that. So if I want to tell you, let's say I think you probably have organ fracturing scans for your patients. I can tell you you're a naughty boy. I can kind of maybe whisper about you behind your back. But essentially, if you're afraid you're going to miss something, and if, we'll say, the College of Osteopathy or the public prosecutor is going to sue you and you're going to be taken to court and made homeless because of missing something, uh, I think it's reasonable that that could be a concern. And so one of the things we've spoken about in some of those imaging things is as long as you are following guidelines and doing what would be considered best practice, then we should indemnify you against that again in a personal injury case or in a litigation so that doesn't mean we must all defend all bad practice, but you shouldn't be thrown under a bus unless it's bad practice and missing something yeah. obvious. And in Ireland, we've got a huge medical negligence culture, and, and there's a lot of very good, sensible, informed doctors, surgeons, physios who know that sending this patient for MRI is necessary, but will do it until you know they are kind of indemnified to a greater extent. And then on that same vein of kind of forcing people, I think if you look at examples from some of the Scandinavian countries where they've done things like meniscectomy studies and shown that this isn't doing a lot for knee, uh, meniscal, degenerative meniscal lesions, what we've seen is that until you ban it, it doesn't work. And then if you ban it in, for example, the public sector, the private sector doesn't change either. You have to, to a certain extent, um, shape the path and make it, if not impossible, make it difficult. And people like Bruce Forrester in Canada, they've done things where when it comes to triggering imaging for spinal pain, it's not banning the doctors and excellent emergency monitoring scans for MRIs, but making it tricky and making it time capsule. Because in the same way that, you know, if you want to stop doctors giving antibiotics for routine sore throats, you should probably make it a little tricky and not make it the easy option. We need to probably systemically put up some barriers. So rather than just only depending on your goodwill and your good nature, making the 
good option, the more attractive. So that means making it at least that you're not going to be financially less well off and that you're not going to be doing anything risky. And I think, again, rather than blaming only the chiropractors, the osteos and physios, I could just stand and I can say, well, to the NHS, you're the one that's telling me, you know, if if I ever miss anything at all on a scan, I'm the one going to going to end up, you know, financially broke or getting my reputation wrong instead of you helping me if I follow the practice. And even saying to our professional bodies, you know, uh, what are you advocating for? And are you, I expect, you know, osteopathy and physiotherapy bodies to promote their profession, but not at the expense of good practice. So I've had some feedback from, people within my profession, and again, a lot of them will be positive about our work, but saying that what you're saying is fine, but when you say that people don't all need physio, like, that's not really a good message to get out of it. And, like, I just, I'm just not happy with that idea. Like, we'll say I'm not a salesperson for my profession. I think there's a lot my profession has to offer. Um, but I don't think that it's, that's my role in terms of promoting public health. And, any tips on social media? So, you know, when I see something horrible on social media, do we let it, you know, for example, the, the big thing on a big thing on Facebook, Instagram is people having the kind of their bodies hammered with, have you seen with the big hammer? Thing? Oh, yeah. I, some people send me these, these videos. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Or just yeah, neck, neck adjustments, which just kind of give you the heebie jeebies in terms of just yanking on people's necks and cracking and, and. Like that's what you do in your practice, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. I've got the, the neck of the head harness. But you know, you look at the views of these things. I mean, they're in the tens, if not hundreds of thousands. Yeah. And and you, you just and then you look at the kind of work that you do and Mary do and Pete do about kind of really you know messaging the public about back pain and myths. And you just think that and I've asked a few people this. I just become nihilistic and think we're just this is never going to work. We're all wasting our time. The tide is, is too strong. What 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 you know, how do we change that clinician with you know, 200,000 views of manipulating or adjusting or doing manual therapy, whatever it might be, to people's bodies. Um, uh, what do we do? Yeah, I, I don't know. And I think, again, you know, it comes back to, like, the cultural stuff. Like, we'll say in the Middle East, there was a specific procedure called hijama, which was a little bit like um, cupping. They cut the skin with a little razor blade and cut the skin and all that. And that was a very commonly accepted treatment. And it was, you know, generations had done it. So, you know, in Ireland, there would have been old kind of... Um, healers and it was again based on yeah almost kind of religious elements to it and all the rest of it so i think people will often like if you look at acupuncture it's around for millennia so there's lots of practices that are around for a long time and again i'm not necessarily saying i'm in favor of banning them but i would often recommend students they read norton hadler's books on healthcare in general now he talks about the american context specifically but he would say that we should essentially, if I had this right, divide our funding of healthcare into two things. There's the stuff that works, which in his view is a really small amount. And then you have this other stuff. And you can also get that, but you within that pool, so for example, there's the stuff that works, and then that's very small, really, really small. And then there's this other pot of money that you as a member of the public can do. And you can do that, but equally you can just go for a massage or go for a nice meal or a part of the cinema. That it's like all that is considered equally therapeutic, in other words, that it's not. And so then it's almost like, I don't think, for example, those things should be funded by the NHS or by any private health insurance company. And years ago, I would have thought that private health insurers, well, if it won't work, they won't want to provide it because, you know, it's not sensible. But actually, they just want to make sure the um, premiums keep coming in. So if enough people buying the premium want it, they'll provide it. Um, Whereas I think, again, societally, we have to 
there's a lot of talk about we're spending too much on healthcare. Well, we're not spending too much on healthcare in terms of giving lifestyle advice around eating weight and smoking cessation and stress management and so on. But there's probably a lot of other crap out there and we should be getting rid of some of that crap. And again, that means if people of their own free will and out of their own pocket want to chase some of that stuff, fine. But there's enough stuff that we need to prioritize for our public healthcare system. And then in terms of how I do with that with social media, there'll be two elements. First of all, I'm not on some of those things like Instagram and all the rest of it. And and secondly, I'm not probably mentally robust enough to get involved in some of these discussions. I would end up getting too frustrated with it. I know I'm a, I'm amazed at how much some people get into it online. Some people I really like, but I'm saying they're obviously better able to switch off than I am. I would unfortunately be one of the people that's wake up at three o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. thinking about some random argument with a stranger <laughs> who I've never met. So life for me, that just doesn't work. But I appreciate it. Yeah, the public shaming doesn't seem to work and it doesn't go anywhere. And, you know, they become tumultuous, these these online arguments, which I regret getting into every time I... Yeah, and, and, I, and like it's tricky, like even in terms of these formats, at least here now we're not the same room, but I can see you and talk. And, and it's, you know, like it's a pretty safe environment. Um, I think that's why I would say I think telehealth, COVID has opened our eyes to the potential of telehealth, and yet it's still a bit stilted in its own. Yeah. But at least... It, you know, there are probably lots of reasons which we can communicate to people. Um, but if I look at, we'll say, the worst reactions I've had from patients it, uh, or members of the public, it tends to be my written communications. And I'm not saying that's the journalist twisting my word. It's like me saying the sentence I've just said, but they haven't seen my body language, my intonation, or, and I haven't actually reflected, you know, with the person in front of me and been able to connect with them. So sometimes we can say things in a leaflet or a booklet that are very sensible, but they piss people off. Um, and, and, and I don't know how we fix some of that, but I think while we've overcomplicated some of the biomedical stuff we've just spoken about, there's still a huge import, uh, value in seeing people face-to-face for that human connection and all the rest. Yeah, and there's just three other things I want to say. One is that you said we've overcomplicated the biomedical stuff, and I guess we can argue we've overcomplicated the, the psychosocial stuff, where really it's a case of time listening and yes we can we we can become more proficient and expert some of those skills but just listening and asking questions and being interested in some of those other areas or or factors which might be salient that's a really great point and and over complicating it and getting very bothered by the psychological stuff and probably underestimate the social stuff because it's so bloody hard to change it but again I ask people if they've had a previous ACL injury. I'm not going to change that. I still think that's useful information to have. And I might be able to change if somebody's divorced or unhappy in their marriage or has a shitty job. But just being aware of it helps me understand that. Yeah. And the the, the other thing, which you see, so you've been credited with the Kieran O'Sullivan talkback technique. Is this your technique? No. Because Matt, Matt Lowe said it was yours and someone else, maybe it was, it might have been Dave Nolan, I can't remember. But... Yeah, so on social media, somebody, in fairness, so definitely not mine. This kind of concept of asking people what they've taken from it goes back for a long time. Long for me. I unfortunately I probably it's a sign that I talk about it a lot. Should we say what it should we say what it is first? Because it's a great technique. Yeah. So essentially, again, I borrowed from other people, but I would with every patient, even patients I saw yesterday, I would ask them, when you leave here, tell me what you would say to your wife or husband or partner about what I said. And that's primarily for me to get a sense of have they understood what I'm getting across? Is there anything they're confused about? And there would often be a follow-up question. 
And that's useful, I think, for two reasons. It does actually tell me how little they've understood. I've, I've had some terrible experiences with that. And secondly, I think it shows them that I'm genuinely interested in how they view the problem. But it's not just because, again, if I went back 15, 20 years ago, when the patient came back, the first thing I would do is almost tell, tell me your exercise or show me your exercises. And I would almost give them a, yes, you're a good boy, you're doing that very well, or you aren't doing it well, you're naughty. As opposed to now, almost the first thing I'll see on the second back is, so what did you take from the last day? Any questions? So again, it's almost like, you know, if you look at how much we time we allocate to different things. If I'm going to say exercise is the most important thing I do with a patient, and of my 30 minutes slot, I spend one minute talking about her or doing exercise, that's a very, that doesn't really tell me to really think it's important. So if I'm telling the person the way you think about this and how you understand it's important, put a big emphasis on it. It's such a great technique. Well, you're going to be credited with it anyway. So because... <laughs> Yeah, I'll steal it. <laughs> the only thing, so I definitely use it. The only, the slight, uh, not banana skin, but the, sometimes patients perceive it as being a test, you know, a listening test. Have you paid attention? Yeah. And sometimes there's a little bit of, not not often, it's almost you know, nine out of 10, 10 it kind of, it yields lots of useful information for them and I. But sometimes there's a... But it could be stressful for them almost. Yeah, sometimes there's a, oh, oh, what were you saying? I was kind of, I wasn't really paying attention yeah. and, and they want you to recite. Um, so uh, yeah, just, and, and it's, it's rare, but it's a couple of patients, I think feel more of a test of their memory or attention skills and anything more reflective yeah. or... or well, that, that's a good point. Again, I was going to say I haven't had that, but obviously that probably really means I haven't noticed it as opposed to having had it. But um, I, again, I think a little bit of then comes back to how I respond to that. Like if they say, oh, I'm not sure, do I give them a look that tells me I'm disappointed in you? Or they kind of say, oh, well, it's the Kerry accent, you know, it's, you know, I used a lot of medical language, which I didn't, but, you know, normalizing if that happens. But honestly, like I've had people say things where I would swear they were in a different consultation. And much and all is I could sometimes say, well, that was them. Obviously, it isn't always them, you know. Yeah, Matt Lowe described it as humbling sometimes. Some of the stories you get back, you know. <laughs> oh, very humbling. Very humbling. Um, and, uh, but I do then ask people variations of that in terms of, you know, I saw the doctor and they'll be quick to say, here's the scan, here's what he said. But it's like, well, tell me what he said. And um, and I get excited when they say, oh, he said it's the thing. Said, What's the thing? Well, you know, the, the yoke, the what do we call it? You know, um, and so they're they're still talking about some relatively benign morphological change in a scan without really understanding what it was. Or, or they sit down your, on your treatment. The first thing they do is get the, the scan report and they kind of slide it towards you on the desk and before they say anything and they kind of say, here, this is it. This is the problem. And, and even on that, I'm not sure what the right thing to do is with those sometimes because for a chunk of patients, I will kind of say, well, you know, like you've had this guy and you've had two doctors and a radiologist and more look at it. And I've had a look before, but like there isn't much value in me adding, you know, my two cents to that. I'm not going to be able to read that scan very well. Um, and I think that's that's often a lot of what I do. I think that works out well sometimes because it shows them that's not why you're here. In contrast, I've had it work out poorly because they say, well, he didn't take it seriously because if you took it seriously, you want all the information. And so... I think there's value in me taking it out and looking at it, but I have to be honest and say I feel like a spoofer if I'm doing that because what am I, like I'm only looking at the scan, which has been seen by a radiologist and has a report. You know, it's it's purely for um, the reassurance of the patient. It's not adding anything to my examination. Kieran, I've taken up far too much of your time. Um, thank you so much. It's been brilliant. I've really enjoyed it. No worries, it's been very enjoyable, Ollie. And uh, like I said, a lot of the time, you know, these conversations convince me more and more that we'll say, 
good care, back pain, or musculoskeletal pain is probably very similar. Whether you're an osteopath like yourself or Jan Harkinson or Greg Lehman as a chiropractor or physio or whatever else, that there's a lot more that's in common across these patients when it's done well. But of course, in the real world, you know, people can get stuck in silos and all the rest of it. Well, you hope so. You hope so that in you know 50 years' time that these professional boundaries are just going to bashed down by evidence and we're all approaching patients in the same kind of compassionate, person-centered and evidence-based way. Yeah, and I think, you know, within most of these professions, I think you've got a lot of smart, highly motivated people who want to help people, but the system sometimes will come back. Kieran, have a lovely day. Thanks so much. Lovely. Thanks a million. Cheers, Kieran. All the best. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs and check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain and I'll see you next time.